and welcome to Fresh Pressed for February 2nd, 2021. My name is Gabe. And my name is Andrew. This is a show about music where we talk about new tunes and huh, and luck and un- unlucky gr- grooves. I mean, not necessarily unlucky. Yeah, I realized that. That's why I sort of <laughs> stumbled in the middle there. Yes, well, our theme this week is superstition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously we're not bringing any Stevie Wonder. Um, there are other songs about superstition, believe it or not. Yeah. Quite a few, actually. But we wanted a slightly broader theme this week because as we enter the month of February, Andrew, we are once again celebrating Black History Month here on Fresh Press, where all of our theme picks will come from artists who are black. Yes. Um, so we're going to stick to that for the next uh, four episodes. And Stevie Wonder still did not get picked this week, so yeah, sorry, Stevie. I mean, we should mention the reason we're doing superstition is because this is this episode is coming out on Groundhog Day. Oh, is that why we're doing superstition? Yeah, I can what did figure you it out. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. No matter. Let's move on to our superstitious grooves. Andrew, what'd you bring? I have brought, so, I guess, sort of a counterexample. <laughs> Uh, this is a song by Howlin' Wolf, and it's called I Ain't Superstitious. Well, I ain't superstitious. Black cat just crossed my trail. Well, I ain't superstitious. But a black cat just crossed my trail. This is the original recording of the song. It was written by Willie Dixon, who uh, was a blues musician and mostly a songwriter. Uh, wrote a lot of very famous blues songs. His most famous would be ones like Spoonful and Hoochie Coochie Man. Like, y- you know who Willie Dixon is, you know? Yes. I mean, I do know who Willie Dixon is, but also well, so do the <laughs> listeners. And you probably know who Helen Wolf is, too. So um, Willie Dixon worked with Helen Wolf a lot, as well as a lot of other of that era of blues musicians like Muddy Waters. Dixon is actually playing upright bass on this track. Howlin' Wolf is, is singing it, of course, and it is his his song. So uh, let's talk about Howlin' Wolf for a second. Born Chester Arthur Burnett, named for the president. Wow. He did have some other nicknames as a child because he was huge. He was 6'3 and around 300 pounds. That is large. He had uh, some nicknames such as Bigfoot Chester, which is not as good a blues name, I don't think, and Bull Cow, which, again, not as good a blues name as Howlin' Wolf. No, although uh, Bull Cow is all right. Yeah, but you would rather be a wolf than a cow. For sure. He got the name Howlin' Wolf, apparently. <laughs> this is sort of, like, upsetting. He apparently got it from his grandfather, because um, he would be sort of recklessly carrying his grandmother's chicks, like baby chicks, and like accidentally squeeze them to death, like he's fucking Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Oh my god, that's terrible. What the fuck? <laughs> so his grandfather said that, uh, would, would like reprimand him for obvious reasons and say that, uh, wolves would come and get him so uh everyone called him the wolf that's like a classic blues anecdote you know (laughs) 
yeah. like maybe apocryphal and you're like you know like did robert johnson really sell his soul to the devil we'll never know we will never know now the howlin part i think is more related to his singing style which you can probably guess one of his idols his musician idols was uh jimmy rogers who's a country singer and apparently he tried to howlin wolf tried to copy what was called a blue yodel style that Jimmy Rogers had, but he really couldn't do it. And he said, I couldn't do no yodeling, so I turned to Howlin, and it's done me just fine. His vocal style is tremendous and well-earned. I mean, it is, I think I think the word I would use is fiery. Mm-hmm. Like there's like some Southern Baptist preacher in that, in his voice. Did you, did you say where he grew up, where he was born? Uh, he grew up in Mississippi. Okay. So yes, you're correct. Cool. Um, he sang in the choir with his mother at at their Baptist church. Uh-huh. Nice. Got it in one. Yeah. Although apparently he after he like made it in the blues scene, his mother would never speak to him again because he was playing the devil's music. Well, my right hand I'll get money for sure. There's a more famous version of this song, which is the Jeff Beck version. Jeff Beck and it should be said Rod Stewart is singing the song and Jeff Beck is playing guitar, obviously. And that's great. Obviously, Jeff Beck is one of the greatest guitarists of all time. So it's very good. And Rod Stewart is, you know, Rod Stewart. Um, and a lot of people like him. Um, but I don't think you can get better <laughs> than Helen Wolf when it comes to real soul and blues. No, and I think there's something that's more compelling about hearing the original artists and right. in that, that style. Yeah, there's a great quote about Howlin' Wolf from the critic Cub Coda, who says, no one could match Howlin' Wolf for the singular ability to rock the house down to the foundation while simultaneously scaring its patrons out of its wits. Uh, yeah, fire and brimstone. So a couple final things about Howlin' Wolf, because I think... His life was pretty cool. Apparently, he was functionally illiterate, like into his 40s. But then he went back to school, got his GED, and then studied accounting and and took some business courses for the purpose of like helping his career, which is very cool. And like not something that a lot of musicians, especially a lot of musicians with this background and a lot of musicians at this time were doing at all, which is where you get a lot of really sad stories about like musicians getting completely taken advantage of by the industry as a whole. But he made a a really impressive effort to get a handle on his own career. I was reading up a little bit about Howlin' Wolf and it sounded like relative to a lot of artists like this, he actually ended up doing fairly well for himself and was recording and and, like did tours in Europe and things like that as well. Yeah, I think so. And also um, another thing that helps with that is that uh, he met his wife at a show, and uh, she was not not really from the same background as he was. You know, well-educated and was not really part of the blues scene, uh, but they sort of fell in love quickly. This quote from Wikipedia, according to those who knew them, the couple remained deeply in love until his death, which is very sweet. But also, 
after they were married, she started to uh, manage sort of the finance and career aspects of it. She was able to focus on that so he could just focus on the music. And that also meant that he could get band members a real salary and uh, get whichever band members he wants. And apparently he was very frugal his whole life. He like drove a station wagon for, for many, the same Pontiac station wagon for many years. I mean, he's still remembered as, as one of the most important blues musicians of all time. So it worked out for him. Gabe, I um, have been trying to come up with a segue specifically into your song, and I can't come up with one. So tell us about your song. Sure. My song is titled Knock on Wood from the album of the same name, um, and it is by Eddie Floyd. So this song is, uh, it turns out, quite well known, but primarily in one of its various cover forms. Uh, most famously, the song was recorded in a disco format by Amy Stewart in 1979, right at the tail end of the disco era, and became something of a, uh, a gay anthem at the time. Hmm. And I wanted to bring that version to some extent, but it was... Number one on the Billboard Hot 100, so that seems like that seems like a fair disqualifying <laughs> yeah. measure. So I, I decided to go for the original, which was released in 1967, um, twelve years prior. And you know, various artists have have covered this song. In addition to Amy Stewart, including um, this guy named David Bowie and um, Otis Redding, you know, small names. Wilson Pickett. Yeah, I think I'm more familiar actually with the the more soul versions of this than the, than that disco, the Amy Stewart one. Like I've definitely heard the Otis Redding version. Yeah. And I think the Wilson Pickett version too. Anyway, this song is very characteristic of a specific era of music. Eddie Floyd was the original writer alongside Steve Cropper, who was the guitarist for Booker T and the MGs. And mm. all of these musicians, including Otis Redding, were a part of Stax Records in Memphis which was one of the two like national powerhouse record labels for like R&B music at the time or the style of music that we know today as Motown but of course Motown is the name of their rival label so yeah i don't know if we can call this Motown it feels like an the injustice. style of music we call stacks <laughs> exactly and Otis Redding was a part of the label although he was sort of on a subsidiary of the label called Volt. And I was reading up some interesting things about this. What I didn't know is, you know, at the time, all of these labels got their music out to the public by getting radio play, right? Mm -hmm. But the radio stations wanted to avoid the perception that they were 
like unduly influenced by a specific label. And so they would only play like one or two artists or a couple tracks at a time from any specific label. Huh. And so to get around this, labels started spinning off like subsidiary labels under different names. So Stax spun off Volt Records, which is pretty much the same entity. Um, and Otis Redding was on Volt. Um, wow. And the other thing I wanted to note on the label front about this song is that um, this song very much fits in with a particular sound that Stax Records was famous for. And more than just like, okay, you have like this like rhythm and blues feel and the like the horns and the harmonies, mm. et cetera, et cetera, right? Like that was very characteristic of the time. But like actually the like the recording sound of the music, uh, like the record label recorded in everybody in the same studio using the same equipment. And the studio had sort of like a weird sloping floor configuration. And you can hear that in, if you like listen to a number of these songs, you can sort of hear like they all have like a, a similar timbre to them, which is interesting. This horn riff, or I guess it's a lick if it's a horn, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever. This is very iconic, but also the timbre of it is iconic because it sounds like Otis Redding. It sounds like Wilson Pickett, you know? Right. It, it has that tone to it. Yeah, and, you know, apparently there are people who are very into the, this style of music who can immediately identify if a song was recorded in the Stax studio in Memphis. Um, I mean, it's also probably n not even just, not only the structure and the, the engineering, but I'm sure a lot of, especially the, the horn players are going to be session players, like Stax session players who play it on all of these records, you know? No, that's exactly true. There was just a, a Stax house band. Yeah, it's the same people playing on all of this music that was released between like nineteen, the early nineteen sixties and like mid nineteen seventies when the label really existed in its primary form. Floyd joined the label as a writer in nineteen sixty five, and then released the song a couple years later, and has sort of been riding off this song and this album for many years. He's still alive. Um, he's like oh, eighty three right. years old now, and um, just released an autobiography last year, apparently, and. Um, still occasionally performs. I think he performed a couple years ago, which is pretty cool. Damn. It's like but I actually wanted to circle back to the horns because... That's something that I love about this style and era of music. There is such obvious musicianship inherent in this sound. Like creating such a cohesive horn section and sound is difficult. Um, and I think that musicianship comes through on a lot of these recordings. Um, underneath all of the writing were these very, very talented players that were working for not great pay um yeah at the time and very little recognition but you know as you said like yeah it sounds like otis redding well otis redding beyond his vocals his sound is because of these incredible studio musicians yeah i don't have much more to say about the song itself uh, other than i think it's wonderfully constructed 
there is a very cool stereo aspect to the sound, which is relatively new to the label at the time. Um, like you can hear the bass is panned really far to the left if you listen <laughs> with headphones. And there's a great like bridge section where the horns are very jazzy, but it's great music. Um, and I really enjoy this this style of music. So yeah, it's uh, incredible. I mean, this this kind of stuff when you get that kind of horn like it is just immediately it's like what you were saying last week it, this is the kind of song that grabs your attention and makes you listen to it I'm not Now, Andrew, this is the second time in, what, three weeks that you've picked a song that's not really a new tune. You know, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to talk about how good this fucking song is. (laughs) This is One by Anna B. Savage. He's left the lights on So I kept my shirt on and I know I know I know it's no fun this is from her uh, debut album which is entitled A Common Turn and yes technically it was on her debut ep six years ago but that time it was a it was a roman numeral one it is also a slightly different song and a slightly different take and we have accepted songs like this before yeah it's a new recording right so maybe so it definitely is it's acceptable but you know you're really walking that line these days yes but i'm i'm happy to walk that line for this this song and this from this album from this musician because i mean without question this is my favorite album of the year so far this is the only album that's in like my top tier of the 50 plus albums that i've listened to this year i was just listening to a different music podcast which i won't mention by name and the host was saying how so often he'll hear a song or an album uh, somewhere near the beginning of the year and that will be the standard by which he judges all of the other albums like he says like this is so good and this is everything else has to compete with this that's anna b savage's a common turn for me from the beginning to the end is is so powerful and emotional and intricately crafted and just incredible i'm, I'm so excited to come back to this album over and over but this this song is just incredible. And of course it's the last track on the album because you know that my favorite track, a mm-hmm. good rule of thumb to figure out which favorite which track of an album is my favorite is to look at the last one. That's probably it. That's how you know Andrew is more of a hipster than I am cuz I tend to pick uh the first song on the album and he tends to pick the last song on the album. Yeah. So, Anna B Savage is an Irish musician. She is currently living in Dublin and doing a master's degree in music at the British and Irish Modern Music Institute, also known as BIM. Both of her parents are professional classical singers. That checks out. 
it really checks out a lot when you hear her voice. She says that there wasn't a lot of pop music in her house growing up, but there was a lot of jazz. So Ella Fitzgerald is like her favorite singer of all time. Um, she listened to a lot of Nat King Cole. This is from an interview uh, with an online magazine called God is in the TV. She says that she spent a lot of time like listening to particular songs by particular musicians and practicing them over and over until she could copy them. So she says, I remember listening to Bill Withers' Ain't No Sunshine repeating the I know, I know, I know refrain until I could do it all in one breath. And she practiced that all the time. <laughs> one of the most crazy things about this, she does this with, with all kinds of musicians. And one of them, which is the wildest one to me, is she used to watch opera. She used to watch like a bunch of Mozart operas because, again, her parents are classical singers. She said she would do the Queen of the Night aria from the Magic Flute until she got it right. And if you don't know what the Queen of Night aria is, you actually do know what it is. It's ludicrously difficult to sing. It's oh, Gabe, you're just going to put in a, a clip of it because I'm not going to try to sing the iconic part. I'm going to sound like a doofus. Yeah, listen to this. Um, yeah, so she would just practice that until she got it right, you know, as a kid. You know, didn't didn't most uh, kids grow up cutting their teeth singing Ella Fitzgerald, Bill Withers, and Mozart? Yeah. One of the two really distinctive and impressive things about her as a musician is th th her voice and her control over her voice, her willingness to go to the the ends of of possibility with her voice. It's just absolutely incredible. Her dynamic and emotional range with her voice is so amazing. And then, of course, she also complements it with the orchestration of the rest of the song. And she is so theatrical with the way that she sings. Like that, that second verse where she's talking about terrible things that men have said to her about her body is so emotional, not only because of the content but because of the way that she uh sings through it and speaks sings through it as well one said my body was didn't like the look of it but jesus he came off smarter than that To grab an inch of stomach and say fat. This song just exudes control to me more than anything else. Yeah. It's just clear that she has a classical background and knows how to use her voice. It was like taught how to use her mm -hmm. voice. And not that that's the best way, but that that's a very specific way. And it does grant you like certain abilities when you're singing that are hard to do if you're self-taught. The orchestration is really finely tuned, and she has such command over the lyrics here. And and just like as a final point on this, like the the tempo is perfectly appropriate, and it's like slightly slower than the original in this one, and it feels like it just got she like just tweaked it a little bit and made it perfect. Yeah, again, very similar to. Uh, that Buck Meek song uh, that yes. I brought. Which, was that also the last track on the album? 
It was the last track. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I thought so. She describes her songwriting, and I really like this, as a, a mosaic. She says her songs are based momentarily on a real thing that happened and made up of other things that really happened or she read about or listened to a podcast about, and then she places those things next to each other to explain the thing that she wants to explain. Right, so this isn't necessarily totally biographical. Right, right? it's not one concrete story, but there are seeds of 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 autobiography within it that are informing the whole thing. And I just, I really appreciate that sort of candor and in her songwriting approach that she's not saying like, these are, these songs are all true. And she's also not saying like, oh, well, I just, you know, I was thinking about this thing. She's saying like, this is true. Even if the parts that aren't true are true because they're part of what I'm writing the song about, you know? Yeah. She also says about the album as a whole, um, sort of about the release process. She says, it feels weird picking out singles and having a nonlinear constellation thing. And then you throw the whole sky up. She's talking about having this whole full piece of art that is the the album and feeling weird about like taking singles and, you know, putting out a single once a month and saying like, here's the lead single from my album. She says, I just don't know if people will give it the time. Also, because I just have never released an album before and I don't know how to get people to listen to it as an album because I do think all these work best in conjunction with each other. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, especially since doing this podcast, I've been paying a lot more attention to listening to albums as albums and paying a lot of attention to when albums demand to be listened to as albums. I think that's true of a lot of things like some of my favorite albums from last year. My, my favorite was, was Lomelda's Hannah. And that to me is so incredible because it is a, it is one complete artwork. And that is also, I feel that a hundred percent with a common turn. I think every moment of the album is informed and improved by every other moment. Like I said, I always love the last song on an album. And a lot of times that's because it's a very sad song. It's a specific type of album that I like the last song of, you know? <laughs> yes. It's a very sad sort of introspective song. And that's obviously very true of this song. But what I love about this is that in the second half of the song, it becomes the other kind of album ending song where it's energetic and powerful and it's still sad. It's still bitter about things that have happened, but there's also a, a hope and a determination in it that becomes this sort of like closing call to action to herself. And it's just great to get both the best of both worlds where I get the, the sadness of the last track and also the excitement and the, the big finish. Gabe, what's your Gabe song this week? 
Hell yeah, we got a game song this week, folks. A game is excited about the game song. <laughs> Listen, I I also really like this album. It feels like less of such a high class piece of art in the way that um, Anna B. Savage did this week, but uh, it is very fun and fully deserving of much praise in its own right. The song is titled "The Brink," and it's off Clothbound, which is the new record from the Sonder Bombs. I also just want to say before we get into it that the Sonderbombs is a very gay band name. Yeah, it is. There's uh, there's a lot about that's that's very Gabe, and there's going to be more Gabe in the middle of it too. So, uh, well, it reminds me of another ver- band name that you were so excited about, and I was like, I don't care about this band name, which was Cuddle Magic, where you were like, it's so nice, and I was like, I don't, uh, I don't like the title of, I don't like the name of this band. <laughs> Not that I dislike Sonderbombs. I think it's a good good band name i just it's just so gabe i just love how wide open you have to make your mouth to say sonder bombs anyway the, the sonder bombs are a band from cleveland consisting of the following four individuals willow hawks who is the vocalist jimmy wilkins kevin cappy and jer birkin i mentioned one of their singles k that came out uh, a couple weeks ago maybe on the first episode of 2021 and I think I might have said that they were from Philly, which is, I hope I didn't say that. I don't remember. But um, they're not from Philly. They're from Cleveland. But they recorded this record in Philly at Headroom Studios. Mm, okay. They recorded this record um, with the producer Joe Reinhardt. Are you familiar with this human being, Andrew, by any chance? I don't think so. Maybe by his, his works. Yeah, so um, here's some other things he's worked on recently. The most recent Hopalong album, Bark Your Head Off, okay. Dog. Mm-hmm. The Francis Quinlan album, Likewise. Big fan. Uh, the, this album by, from Beach Bunny last year called Honeymoon, which I loved. Mm. An album called Diet Sig, Do You Ever Wonder About Me, who I also love and have that sticker on my yeah. laptop. Um, <laughs> Modern Baseball's Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Bad Moves is Untenable, which I also brought last year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, very specific style of music that I really enjoy. Andrew, do you know what the word Sonder means? I do. Um, It's been explained to me by Jessica Hoop in a live performance. Oh, nice. Wow. Cool. All the way around. So Sonder is the realization that each passerby, random person, is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's a made-up word. Like somebody intentionally yeah. made it up, and then it like sort of entered actual. It's a neologism. Please say exactly what you think. Yeah, I know. We're about to sing. Tell me that we're standing. So I think this album rips, and this song is a great example of a song that rips. It also rips particularly hard in the context of the album because the song before it, uh, which is titled Scattered, is like very mellow, and it's like probably mm-hmm. the, the energetic nadir of the record. 
Um, and this kind of like takes the energy back up, which is really fun in the context of the album. And I think the song embodies their whole ethos, which is like pop punk and lots of influence from uh, like bands like Hop Along. I hear an enormous amount of Paramour in this, particularly in Will Hawks' <laughs> yeah. voice. Uh, I mean, she sounds a lot like Haley Williams in a great way. And, you know, it it harkens back to like an era of music that I think we grew up with that sort of come back around, I think, in the mm-hmm. last couple of years with like the bands that I named that Joe Reinhardt has worked with, for instance. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Um, but there's some good, good like twists on this on this record. Um, two of them that I'd like to point out. First, great harmonies in the chorus here, and it really rocks. And the harmonies make a lot of sense. And I do think it's just Willow Hawks harmonizing with herself for the most part. Although there are some lower voices that join in, I think they feel more unusual in this context. Uh, like especially when they're like really in your face, like these harmonies are. And the second thing I love about this song and also the record as a whole is how much it relies on ukulele, <laughs> <laughs> which just kind of feels out of left field, but it works quite well. You know, in the middle of the song, it sort of drops out to just the ukulele, and then the ending of the song is also surprisingly soft and, like, pretty, which you wouldn't expect from how hard it hits during the chorus. I was excited for this record when the single came out, and I'm really glad that it lived up to my expectations. And I, yeah, it's just going to be one of those records that sticks with me this year, and I'm I'm happy that it exists in my life. When we first hung out to dry, I don't want to pretend like nothing's changed. It hasn't will again. I don't want to feel like I can't talk to you. Just tell me. Before we get to uh, other new music, I just want to take a quick moment to talk about um, some really sad news from the music world this weekend, which was that the producer and musician Sophie passed away tragically at the age of like, she's like 34. If you don't know her music, she's, she's a really incredible electronic musician, um, sort of at the vanguard of, of pop music for the last several years. Like, she was 100 Gex before 100 Gex was 100 Gex. Her record in 2017, um, Oil of Every Pearl's Insides, Uninsides, is like this really cool avant-garde blending record. Um, And she was like very much a musician's musician. Yeah. You can tell that from all of those things that people have said, both, I mean, in the past and, and in the uh, in the last couple days, that she was admired and beloved by so many of her, her peers and uh, her audience. So it's, it's really sad news that, that she has uh, passed away. There's a great quote that is, is going around. It's from an interview in 2015 with Rolling Stone. She says, I think all pop music should be about who can make the loudest, brightest thing. Oh, I, was 
Andrew, there was some other great music that was released this week. What else caught your eye? Very first on my list is an album by Goat Girl called On All Fours. Uh, Absolutely incredible album. At least for me, it was definitely like my second favorite album of the week. I don't know for you, but like if if that Annabee Savage album hadn't come out this weekend, I would have definitely picked a Goat Girl track. Really just incredible, vibrant, exciting jazzy funky great listen to it yeah it's awesome but actually maybe my second favorite album of the week was uh kanawa from nahawa dombia i thought that was going to be one where i said it and you didn't know what i was talking about i know i read npr too andrew (laughs) (laughs) she sings a form of west african music from from southern mali i believe called wasolu music just like so rhythmic and like swinging kind of feeling i I don't know hard i don't really have the language to describe it um i really liked a guitar album by yasmine williams called urban driftwood um very cool solo guitar if that's your thing then you will like this it's gotten a fair amount of buzz ahead of time um, and probably some wider media play, but I really did love the Arlo Parks album yeah. that came out titled Collapsed in Sunbeams. I thought mm-hmm. it was beautiful. It opens with a lovely poem. Um, there's an album by Buzzy Lee called Spoiled Love. Very into it. Very cool. There's kind of a, I don't know, like a gloomier dissidenter. It's got some, maybe some metal vibes um, from the Besnard Lakes that I mm-hmm. liked, called The Besnard Lakes to the Last of the Great Thunderstorm Warnings. Gabe, I'm maybe going to surprise you by being the one to pull this, but I really like the Mad Lib album this week. You know, I haven't listened to it yet. It's um, great. Okay, I'll check it out. It's He did it with Fortet, um, yeah. and it's really, really cool and excellent. I think he said it in a couple interviews, but like, it was a weird time for him to be releasing an album because just a month ago... He, along with everybody else, learned that MF Doom had passed away. One of MF Doom's most famous albums is under the, like, duo name Mad Villain, him and Mad Lib. And that's an album called Mad Villainy. And so uh, Mad Lib has talked about how weird it is to be putting out an album at this time. But it's, it's a really excellent album. It's very cool. Honestly, I think the new Ani DeFranco album is really good. I know that's not really in the purview of our podcast, but it's it's pretty good. All right. Like in terms of in terms of status. But uh yeah. It's great. Oh, one last one last little thing is one single that came out this week that I just want to mention because the story behind it is, is pretty funny. Um Jensen McRae put out a song called Immune. I just saw it like it came up on my recommended and I just put it on the playlist and I started listening to it. I was like, wait, this is super familiar. Is this like a cover or something? And I realized I had seen it be born in real time because she had tweeted it as a, in like one year, we're going to get some Phoebe Bridgers song about waiting in line at Dodger Stadium for the vaccine that is also about, you know, her depressing romantic relationships. And so she just turned it into a whole song and uh, put it out. It's great. Hilarious. And it's also has, it has like those obvious Phoebe Bridgers roots, but also she's 
turned it into her own song, especially with the chorus. It's it's a great song. So you've got now um, the first month of 2021 is, is coming to a close or has come to a close by the time you're listening to this. And yeah. um, you have all these album recommendations from us. And fortunately for you, dear listener, Bandcamp Friday is back this yes. Friday. Yes, it is. So take advantage of that. Um, there is some great merch that I might purchase off the Sonder Bombs Bandcamp. They are selling a crying is cool wine glass, um, <laughs> sleep mask, and uh, bath bombs. So that's exciting. Right. Oh, bath bombs. That's funny. Unfortunately, I do have to tell you that both the vinyl and the CD bundles from Anna Savage that include the album on your chosen format and a uh, pocket vibrator. Those are both sold oh. out, so you cannot get that anymore. But you and you also can't even get the vinyl at all. But you can still get the CD, which I will be doing on on Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Fresh Press Pod. We may or may not shout out some recommendations on Friday. Um, we will. We've been inconsistent with that, but we'll we'll try. You can find a playlist of our music from 2021 in the show notes, um, and that playlist is on Spotify. And then we'll be back on February 9th with more tunes and more grooves. But for now, my name is Gabe. My name is Andrew. And you have been listening to Fresh Press. Fresh Press.